0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listie here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today I have another craft work episode for you, a conversation called how to think like a publicist featuring Lauren Sarand, a literary publicist with more than two decades of experience running her own thriving global communications consultancy. Lauren Sarand is known for her personal touch, her communicative elegance her style, her joie de vivre. There's all sorts of things she's known for, but she is excellent at paying close personal attention to her clients, to their needs, to their goals and desires. She has cultivated over the course of her career, a vast network of relationships in and around publishing. And she is expert at publicity and at making the kinds of strategic creative choices that will garner, attention for a book an author and his or her body of work. Lauren Sarand works with authors early on in their careers or at pivotal moments in their careers. Her notable clients include Atticus Lish, Min Jin Lee, and Tayari Jones. And this year Lauren Sarand launched and led for Poets and Writers, the inaugural cohort of Get the Word Out, a new publicity incubator for debut authors. My conversation about how to think like a publicist with Lauren Sarand is coming up in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at substack, .substack bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter goes out once a week. I let you know about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, the Other People podcast has a Patreon community. If you love this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get yourself some merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, you can get a book club subscription, all that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, the new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lynn, a recent guest on this program. The Night Parade is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club, in it Jamie Nakamura Lynn braids her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the resulting grieving process, as well as other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lynn, available from Mariner Books. All right, so it is time for The main event, my conversation with literary publicist Lauren Sarand. You will hear us in conversation talking about how to think like a publicist, which should be of interest to all of you out there who are interested in writing and publishing. I had a great time, as I always do, talking with Lauren, who I have known for quite some time. You'll you'll hear us talk about that. We kind of came up together. Same generation, more or less, and I've known her for a while, and she's wonderful. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lauren Sarand.
1: I went to school at Cornell, and I majored in industrial and labor relations, which is a combination of politics, economics, some kind of legal stuff, and um, a lot of human resource management and labor history, essentially. It's, there's only one program in the country. Well, there's a few, but the one at Cornell is probably the earliest established one. So I did that for my major. And when I got out of school. I was really just deeply aware that I had been given this extraordinary gift to study at this university and to have had these experiences and to have spent, you know, four years kind of reading about workplace issues and sort of what people deal with and experience working every day of their lives. And I thought I really want to do something that supports that, kind of ameliorate some sense of injustice in the world. So I got a job at the AFL-CIO, which is the sort of highest level of the organization of all of the labor unions in the United States. And uh, there was only one job, there was a, it's a bit hard to find a job there. And uh, in the labor movement, unless you come out of the shop floor, you know, from a different uh, angle. And so I applied for a job in the media outreach department, and this was in the year 2001. So uh, I remember one of the questions was, I was like, I'm, I'm not quite sure what public relations is actually. I'd never met a publicist. I'm not from New York, so I didn't grow up around publicists. I grew up in Washington D.C., so I grew up around, you know, lobbyists and lawyers and things like that. And they were like, "Well, you know, do you like to talk on the phone and can you write letters?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm a teenage girl, of course." So <laughs> that was kind of the introduction and it was a very competitive process. I think there were 450 other applicants. And so I went to work there, and the idea was that they would train uh, a couple of people a year how to do public relations for these national and international campaigns supporting workers organizing their workplaces. And so essentially at the AFL-CIO, I would be assigned to different departments within the organization, um, whether they were organizing workers are or working on a campaign and, um, you know, wanted to compel the employer to sit down at the table with them and uphold their legal responsibilities. And so uh, I did that for a year. It's a lot of getting people on television. It's a lot of front page news. It's totally in the news cycle. It's essentially politics, really, most of the time, especially because I was living in Washington, D.C. So I was running press conferences on Capitol Hill and Uh, really working primarily on on newspapers and international TV. That was my main thing. And then um, at the end of that position, I was recruited to go and work in New York at the Garment Workers Union, which is a particular goal of mine because there are 65 unions and there's only one, I think, in New York. And so I really wanted to go to New York. That was really my dream. And so I went there and I did that for a year. I really liked it, but I was sort of going along and just sort of thinking, you know, I'm in this world that is really interesting and really aligns with my values, but I'm not sure that I'm reaching that many people that don't already agree with me. Or conversely, I'm having to pitch the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which is sort of famously conservative about people organizing, you know, in a chicken processing plant. And the internal dialogue is like, you know, very straightforward, but you have to still convince people that don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of understanding or compassion for what you're working on all the time, you know, to cover the story and to be interested and to be engaged. So it was really creative work. It was incredibly challenging. You can't give up, you know, you can never give up because there are real consequences for that. So You know, we just worked and worked and worked and worked until we got enough press coverage that, um, you know, it was a serious conversation that had to be had by all of the involved parties. So I did that in New York and then I was really into books, but I didn't grow up with a a bad, I mean, I read books because I loved them, but no one in my family or life worked in publishing. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a really elite thing, you know, that I would have had to major in medieval Irish classics and have grown up like spending my summers in Maine. And I just saw no way in. I I just couldn't imagine it as a job. I mean, you have to sort of see a job or have it explained to you to understand that it's a job. And there was no sense to me that a person could work in publishing. So maybe you could be an agent because my boyfriend had an agent and he was a journalist. So I started a reading series with some friends. It was just a really feminist project. It was um, in a, a basement of a bar. I think that's around the time that I met you. And we were doing this and people just weren't really sort of understanding that we were really had a point of view. And so we started a blog. I had to explain to everyone what a blog was. This is 2003 now. And it really took off. It really started to change my life because all of a sudden, all of these people that wouldn't reply to invitations to read at the reading series were like, Oh, I saw you in the village voice. We saw you online. Like, yes, this person in Arizona has only dreamed of your reading series, you know, forever, even though it had been around for a year. So I started to see publicity in action, not just on a kind of broad scale, but actually impacting my life. And so um, I was also at the same time, the uh, guy that had shown me some apartments when I moved to New York, I had said, you know, what do you do? And I said, I work, you know, in this job. And I said, what do you do when you're not showing people apartments off of Craigslist? And he said, I, um, I organize parties for artists to try and help emerging artists sell art. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that you could just say what you want to do. And so I was like, I want to work with you on that. I will volunteer my services So that I can learn how to do this different thing. And so basically what he would do is he would rent uh, these huge venues that, you know, 1,200 people could come into. And then he would have 15 or 20 artists come and display their work for one night, get an amazing DJ, and then sell tickets at the door. And then ideally, some of the people that came to the party would then also buy some art. And it worked really, really well. And I was in charge of the publicity. And so one of the things that I learned pretty quickly at that time, this is pre-social media, the internet is just starting to emerge as a kind of social construct. And so pretty quickly, because I was also running the door, what I learned was the sponsors wanted to see a listing in Time Out New York. You know, the sponsors really wanted to see this kind of print awareness. But if I asked people at the door how they heard about the party, they always said, a newsletter, an email, flavor pill, a message board. It was like night and day. And so I started to see what would become quite a dominant theme of my career, which is that, you know, there's these multiple narratives that are unfolding at the same time for kind of what we think success looks like and what we sort of experience it as. And so I did that for a while. Then I decided that uh, I was going to leave the labor movement and sort of try and get some different experience. So when I was 23, I became the lectures publicist at the 92nd Street Y and the dance publicist as well. And I did that for a little bit less than a year. And um, yeah, when I left there, I sat on a very cold park bench in Central Park and I cried because I just thought I work so hard and I just can't. I can't find a place where like the excitement and the creativity and the sense of experimental social, you know, dialogue is is really the kind of center of things. And so, you know, at that time, publicity, especially in New York, especially in the cultural world, was very formal and was really only about getting newspaper coverage. But I was promoting, you know, 12 or 14 lectures a week. You're not going to get a New York Times story every night. And so I was really interested in these kind of alternative pathways, but um, employers weren't as excited <laughs> about things as I was because when you went to do a publicity interview, then you had to take a, an actual folder with your clips, with your newspaper stories pasted in there, and then you went through it with every single prospective employer and you explained how you would place the story what the purpose of it was, what the message was, what the result was. And I had a huge stack of clips at that point. And I invariably would say like, oh, yeah, I've done all this, but it's not as interesting to me as other things. I'm really excited about the internet. And people would just say like, you know, that's not a real thing. It's really not a real thing. And I was like, Hmm. okay. So then I was not really sure what I was going to do. And I was like applying for jobs. Not really seeing a path for myself. I was, you know, heavily encouraged to go back to DC and take up my old job, but I really wanted to stay in New York. And I had a boyfriend who was a journalist and a media critic, and he had a book coming out right around this time. And I remember saying to him, like, Well, of course you have a book publicist, which is the most glamorous, most intellectual, most professional job I can imagine. I would know nothing about that. But I do know how to run publicity for political campaigns and I can tell you exactly how to do the publicity for this book. So I just kind of spelled it out for him. Just everything that I saw as an advantage or a strategic disadvantage. He had been on TV before. So I was like, you need to lean in TV because it's a paperback. People didn't take paperbacks as seriously then. I was like, you know, here's all the stuff you need to do before election day, because it was about Uh, George W. Bush and his kind of fast and loose approach to some things in the media, but as indicative of a larger shift in our society where people were, you know, um, just less concerned with things kind of being fact-checked or presented as objective truth and backed up. And so I said, um, you've really got to do everything you can because, you know, Kerry could get elected, you really have no idea, and your book could be, you know, not relevant anymore. And so you should do as much TV as possible before election day. And I gave him a whole plan and he went to his publisher and we were living together at the time. And I remember he came back dejected and was basically like, you know, they didn't spend a lot of money. So they told me that it's not a priority. And I, having come out of an activist background at this point for my career, was like, that's not acceptable. So I, I, I did what I knew how to do. I went and got the, uh, the directories for a media database, came in these sort of phone books by Media Market. I got one down. I looked at The Daily Show because we watched that every single night together with Jon Stewart. I saw that they like to be pitched by a fax, a letter by fax. So I wrote a, a cover letter and I said, a lot of people say that young people don't care about politics, but that's not true. Like here's some people that really, really care And this is one of the co-authors, he's done TV before, and I really think you should have him on to talk about this. And they said, yeah, you're absolutely right. So he went on The Daily Show, and Jon Stewart's, I remember very vividly because he said, I don't normally recommend books, but I think everyone in America should go out and get this one tonight. And that was it. So that became a New York Times bestseller overnight.
0: Okay, wait, 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 wait. So, first of all, were you there? Did you go to the? Oh yeah, I was standing with his
1: agents, and they picked me up, and one of them spun me around.
0: (laughs) I bet. Okay, so that's question number one. You were there. You you, like kind of standing in the wings, watching this unfold. uh,
1: Right off stage, where you're looking at the people, like on the desk, and you're with the producers. You know, with the headphones and the cameras.
0: Okay, and then secondly, was there any feedback after this? From his publisher, and yeah,
1: they were really mad actually because I hadn't told them that I was doing that. Well, what do they? That was the that was the uh, the actual response was that um you know they were they were unhappy about that. They would have preferred a heads up. I was like, whatever. Yeah, whatever. You you kind of whatever.
0: They forfeited they forfeited their right to a heads up when they decided not to promote the book.
1: It was just such an important lesson to me because that's when I started to understand that like you know, there is a mainstream conversation, but it just has nothing to do with talent. It is nothing, It just really doesn't. It's about other stuff. It's about whatever book they paid the most money for. It's about whoever the PR director loves, because I had been in jobs at that point where, you know, some stuff's a priority, some stuff you're told is not a priority. And you can do what you can do, but like, you're still working in, in a structure and a culture that is making choices. So um, after that, I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's really a lot like um, the way that the campaigns that I know how to do work, which is where I would be given a brief in a city and explained what was going on. And then I would just kind of go to work getting coverage for whatever it was. So I was like, oh, I know how to do this, you know, and, and I'm not wrong. And it's just a lot. There's a lot of opportunity here for someone who believes in what they're doing, you know? And that, that was not a difficult leap for me. I don't know that I knew how I would pay my rent, but I was also 23 years old. Like, I thought, you know, I, I need to find something that I feel passionate about and then I'll worry about the rest of it later. And, and I was paying my rent myself, so <laughs> it was a tall order. But I really thought, yeah, this is something. And so then, because I had the feminist reading series Writers started calling me because they heard about The Daily Show. And so uh, the first writer that called me was Tiari Jones, and she had to talk me a little bit into being a publicist, which I'm grateful for. I was like, I'm really not sure. I haven't done a book before.
0: And, and Tiari Jones, said, author of what was her big breakout book? Was it called American Marriage? Uh, American
1: Marriage, yeah. yeah. This is her second novel we're talking about, The Untelling, which, if you read one book, I think that's the one. One book that I talk about today, you should obviously read them all. But yeah, so we just decided to take a leap together and I ended up working with her all the way through an American marriage.
0: Okay. So that was your first client, like your first official. That was my
1: first, my first like real person that, you know, I wasn't dating.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I think yeah. that, I think that it's important to flag the organic nature of the growth of this. Yeah. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just because you were dating a guy who had a book come out who, whose book was getting insufficient publicity attention, in your view. It was also that you were doing a feminist reading series. It was also that you had this background in publicity tied to the labor movement and your college education. So there are a lot of different pieces to the puzzle, and then it kind of culminates, at least in this very early phase of your career, in an author asking you, Like you didn't go to her and solicit her. She came to you.
1: Yeah, no, I've never solicited a project to this day. Yeah, and also I was doing those uh, emerging artist parties. So it's a lot harder to get 1,200 people to a party in one night than it is to publicize a lot of things in New York. So I was sort of had this, and because I had been given so many different kinds of projects in the labor movement, which are often very high stakes, very tense and very complex, I kind of just accepted that from my book projects, like, okay, you know, so a lot of things, you know, a lot of people want to do publicity that's easy. And I understand that if there's something to be said for that, for sure, you know, or just stuff that you know, is going to be a smash success, of course. But for me, um, I think there's a lot of moments when maybe other people would say it's not possible or no, that I just doesn't occur to me. I just think that's really interesting, like, you know, tell me more.
0: Well, so you take this job with uh, Tayari and you launch your career as a literary publicist. Can you talk about early projects, early clients, and what what you learned in that phase?
1: Yeah, like one of my earliest clients, like not even probably three, four months after that was Marcy Dermanski for her debut. And, um, and, and so I was styling myself now that I had, you know, no paycheck and no restraints. I was like, I'm going to just do the internet. That's my thing. Like, this is my deal. And so I was really into the world of literary blogs. This is when you and I connected. I was like, there's this world of really serious, interesting, creative, thoughtful people that are reading whatever they want. And I want to talk to them, you know, and I want to have this conversation and I want to, I want to kind of break free of this idea that there's this sort of expiration date that's built into every, you know, product because yeah, for a product, sure. But for something that is a creative expression of your souls and artist, it's something really different. So I was working with Marcy and I remember I said, um, what, what's your goal? And she's from the New York area. So she was like to be in the New York times. And I was like, yeah, okay, well I'll try. But You know, I didn't know anyone at the New York Times or even how to contact them. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to look for uh, some information and a way to get in there. But in the meantime, I'm going to send the book and information about the book to like everyone that I'm already really into. And I knew that it was working because two weeks after the book came out, like the Village Voice, I think the New York Sun, Time Out New York, like everybody but the Times reviewed it on the same day. But it was like after pub date. It was like there was buzz and suddenly – Suddenly this book was interesting to people. And this um, this was twins. Felt,
0: was this twins?
1: This was twins. Yeah, yeah. They felt compelled to pick it up. And so, um, and then I think a couple months later, it was right before the end of the year, the New York Times ran a brief that called it an emotionally sophisticated Bildungsroman roman for two. And wow. I was like, All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so uh, after that I remember just thinking, like, all right, like You know, the New York Times is getting 500,000 calls a day. You can add to that. And you can also think about the ways in which people who are editors are also really interested, sure, in reading their pitches. But, like, ultimately, people want to cover the books that they think people are going to be talking about and reading and discussing. And there's room for them to acknowledge that maybe they miss one sometimes, so there might be a book that's on a small press or for some reason people have decided it's not the book of the season. Often it can be a mid-career writer, you know, where they've just been kind of like pegged further and further and further sort of out from the center. Especially with the changes in the past 20 years when you get into, you know, a lot of midlist authors and publishing houses kind of being squeezed out. And so and also a lot of book coverage disappearing. You're not imagining it. That's real. And so um, I just sort of thought, like, I'm really going to focus on what I can do to find readers for these writers, you know, and then hopefully the media will pay attention and I will learn what people like because I don't pitch everyone everything. I mean, you might get a book from me like a couple times a year if I really think you like it. Sometimes people will say like, "Oh, can you send that to me?" And I'm like, "Sure, absolutely." But I, like, there's no like robo email coming out of my house. It's every single message that I send, I send personally, and I send it to someone who I think would be interested in receiving it. And that's because when I started out, I just sort of felt like, you know, a lot of people don't respect publicists and publicity, and it's because there's a sort of sense that you're not speaking for yourself, but you know, I believe in everything that I work on and I always have. And I decided really early on that, like I would rather be hungry than, than lie.
0: Well, and I think that's a good point. I mean, the fact that you and I have known each other for so long speaks to your, the personal attention that you take to outreach, which is unique. I would say in my experience of being on the receiving end of a ton of literary publicity because of this show and because of the nervous breakdown in years past. And you do. As, as you start to receive dozens of these emails a day, mm-hmm. you realize like these are just copies and pastes. Like sometimes it just says like, dear editor or dear content creator or something. And you just like, it starts to feel a little bit inhuman. And I get that it's a lot of work, uh, you know, to do the, the volume of outreach that is being asked of a lot of these people. But I think if you're trying to build a career, particularly independently, that your strategy is advisable. Because after a while you start to tune out those robo, Mm. those robo emails, you know, but whenever you email me, I read it and we, (laughs) and we know each other, you know, and like we have like a, a friendship. So it's like a little personal touch goes a long way.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's really about like respecting people's preferences, which can be everything from that person likes a big book, that person doesn't like a big book, that person likes this, that person, you know, I do have a photographic memory, so it really assists me. But um, I, I really go out of my way to try and understand what people like and to only send them what I think they would like. Because, you know, I do see this kind of It's a little bit different because I think at a publishing house level, you know, the publisher's job is to announce that there is a book available for sale. That's really the deal. But often I'm working in this kind of liminal space where I'm assisting. I'm on the team for that. But I'm also working with the author to figure out like, how do you make the relationships that are going to sustain you? You know, and I think a great start is by being read by people that really get the work and understand the work and are kind of paying attention. And so I get that there's, you know, maybe always a a different group of literary critics working or it's harder to get coverage or this or that. And I have obviously a lot of thoughts about that. But I think on the fundamental personal level, it's just that it will always be a human endeavor for me. It's never going to be, you know, I have a subscription to a media database, but I still every single email is typed out by me and sent by me and it is with a lot of thought about where it's going
0: so okay so early aughts beginning in this line of work sure your career has tracked the like as all i guess all of our careers to some extent have tracked the rise of the internet social media the 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 rise and fall i would say with some degree of sadness of the blogosphere Like there have been all of these kind of tectonic shifts happening, Mm -hmm. which have a great impact on book publicity. And so you're talking about reaching out to the New York Times on behalf of Marcy Dermansky. You're also talking about uh, the blogosphere and having affection for it and seeing its potential maybe earlier than some. Mm -hmm. You've had to be in a kind of constant state of adjustment over the course of your career in terms of responding to these changes. Can you talk a little bit about that part of it and having to kind of learn these new systems as they emerge?
1: Well, I've learned it by experiencing it, which is probably uh, the wisest teacher. So for instance, the things that work, I want to do more of. The things that aren't working, I tend to do less of. The biggest challenge has absolutely been just kind of trying to encourage people to really think about publicity in a contemporary context and not just what it was 20 years ago. Because there's so many people that are doing amazing work as historic preservationists trying to convince us all that we're still in a Meg Ryan comedy about publishing and you're going to (laughs) go on a book tour and by the time you get back to the airport in the Twin Cities, you're going to need a bodyguard. And I just... (laughs) It happens sometimes, but uh, it's really, for me, a, a process of constantly sort of learning how the world seems to work and how I seem to be experiencing it and how I might transmit that experience, you know, to authors and to people who are really interested in talking about books. I would say, you know, I'm not a snob about that. It's wherever it is that is relevant to the work that I'm doing.
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so I think like now's as good a time as any to talk about expectations management, which I have to sure. believe is a big part of the work that you do, especially at the yeah. in the early stages of kind of onboarding a client and asking about yeah. their goals and. You know, you came out of the gates and sort of hit a home run, booking your boyfriend onto the Daily Show, and it's a New York Times bestseller. And you sort of, what's the word, stuck it to his publisher <laughs> in a way, you know, by by making this all happen independently. Uh, and then you get Marcy's mention in the New York Times, and you know, obviously Tayari's had a great career, but you know, it, it's not always the case. It's a tough business, and people who come to you as a client might sometimes i would imagine have outsized expectations for say how a debut novel is going to emerge into the world most likely you know so can you just talk about how you talk to clients and what mm-hmm. what a what an author who is publishing for example her debut in the world might be advised to be thinking about as they get closer to publication day
1: yeah for me the biggest shift actually came sort of before and after the pandemic when I was 40 I gave everything up I moved to Florence Italy and I went to jewelry school full-time I came back on August 31st 2020 moved into a building in New York that was like completely empty because everyone had left relaunched my business actually from the hotel room I was quarantining in And so I had to just hit the ground running. And the biggest difference since then that I've tried to really, really share in a compassionate way is that reviews are really different now. Like, I really think that a lot of books now, you know, get one review and the world kind of moves on. So I just try to emphasize with authors in every single conversation that it is such an honor to be read by your peers and to have your work reviewed and that it's one element of a campaign and that other things have to be happening for you to reach readers because there's just no guarantees that that's going to happen. Before I think there was a narrative that I still hear get pushed a lot, you know, that reviews are driving the campaign, you know, that you're starting off pub day that all these reviews are going to land and line up and then that's just going to build and build and build. I'm like, even when I see that, a lot of the times what I see is, you know, a book gets its close up and spotlight for a few days and then the world moves on. There's books coming out every Tuesday. So I often try to just figure out with authors, what are your strengths? Where are your readers? What are some different ways that you can reach them? How are you already in conversation with them? You know, is there already a community of people that are going to identify strongly with your work that have organized themselves into a group? What are some possibilities for telling the story about your work, whether it's through, you know, your byline, what you write, what you publish, your participation in the local literary scene, contributing in some other way. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is just kind of doing a little bit of not managing expectations so much as course correction with, you know, what the campaign actually looks like, what time actually looks like, because I've been doing this now for more than 20 years. And um, sometimes success is really quick. But I think the vast majority of successful people would tell you, it might have taken them two, three, four books to find the audience and to find that groove, you know, and so I am often trying to figure out with people About, you know, how do you build the kind of resources that you have that are portable that you can take forward with you in life so that if you then have a review, you have someone to share it with and you can use that and put it on your product page and keep going? Because I think the hardest thing for people is this intense anxiety from not having a clear understanding of what you should be expecting or what is even the norm. And then you sort of are in it and then it's so overwhelming and then. You realize you can't stay that stressed out forever. So you want to give up. So I'm just always right there trying to say like, all right, well, what's some stuff we could do? What's the thing that we can do? What feels undone? Specifically what feels undone? And how might we address that so that you feel like the momentum that you really want to feel with your career and with this work is happening? And that's there's a different answer for that every day.
0: Well, and I feel like there is an element of kismet involved in any book that takes off, finds an audience, meets its cultural moment kind of in step with the culture there's an element of timing and so a question that comes up you know from an authorly perspective has to do with how much this kind of stuff can be muscled because i'm i'm the kind of person i have like a diy ethic to me and a sort of stubbornness like i will just keep grinding at something if i believe in it like almost like look at my podcast (laughs) like 12 years in you know if i believe in something i will just work and work and work at it and i think that there is inherent in that sort of thing sometimes this idea that like if i just push hard enough eventually it will break through and the truth is that not always like it takes a little bit more than that it takes like some good breaks right it takes the right coverage or it takes the right person trumpeting the book like who knows how exactly it happens but Mm Can you just talk about that element of it and what your view yeah. of it is
1: yeah absolutely i mean my number one point is that success is not a referendum on talent or even popularity but it is a referendum on obscurity you know and so that is kind of what a lot of people are looking at when they're deciding what which one of 500 books they want to put on a list or something which is just like you know, how well do I know this press? How well do I know the editor? How well do I know the author themselves? Like, what are they sort of connected to that I am familiar with or understand? And I think from my point of view, one of the things that people sort of jump to a conclusion about is that that's all kind of like money or influence or something like that. And like, sure, if I was a major advertiser, maybe I could say to a magazine or an editor like, you know, I think you should take another look at that book that you're not interested in. But I'm not I'm not in that position. So for me, it's just always about like, yeah, what is relevant to the cultural moment happening right now? Like what is, what is it about this book that maybe answers a question that hasn't been even raised yet? You know, sometimes books come out and it's an author that you think you know, but there's just something different about it. And you're curious and you want more. And I find that with a lot of the books that I've worked on, you just have to have the book get read. You know, when I started working on Pachinko for Menjin Lee, that's a big book, and big books often I find have a really interesting staying power because the people that make a commitment to reading more than, let's say, 400 pages, often do want to talk about it for quite a while. But in the beginning, you're just sort of like. I need people to read this book. And the way to get them to read this book is for them to feel that other people are reading the book. And that starts out really slow. That might just be, you know, two or three or four or 10 or 15 people, but it grows. And so what I think I see a lot of the times, you know, with authors who feel frustrated is this sort of sense of like, I'm being passed over, you know, I'm not a high profile person. And so therefore, I'm not going to do anything and nothing's happened. But from my perspective, it's such a collaborative project when I publicize a book. So, you know, I'll often say to someone, is there an essay that, you know, you've wanted to explore? Is there another writer that you could interview? Or is there a book that you quite like that no one else talks about it that maybe you could pitch something on? Or, you know, what could we get you involved in? that might bring you to the attention of someone, you know, writing about books locally or nationally or on a niche topic. And I think those are the kind of sort of steps forward that often are a really great opportunity that sometimes people maybe don't think will have an impact.
0: And they do have an impact.
1: Yeah. It's doing more of what you've been doing forever, but it's also thinking about, you know, what, what can I do to work on my visibility? What can I do to, to connect in some way? Because again, like, you know, might pay off tomorrow, might pay off a year from now, but I think all of that stuff does that up and it does mean something.
0: Well, and just to, to use Pachinko as an example, since you worked on that book, and I think it has gone on to have a lot of success. It sold a lot of copies. Yeah,
1: It's like a c- classic of its time.
0: Yeah, it's a great novel. And so just out of curiosity, like that, that didn't come out of the gates doing great numbers, but it was a more of a slower build that just kind of built up over time? Is that the way that it went for that book?
1: Yeah. I worked on Minjin's debut as well, Free Food for Millionaires. And, um, yeah, she had a great track record, and she was really well-respected, but it was not a launch that, um, you know, when people sort of were like, oh, you know, this this person just came out, and every single carpet was unrolled for them. Uh, no, not in the beginning. She was a, a hardworking everyday author, like, you know, everyone else and just talking about a new novel.
0: And then, I mean, and then something, you know, you talk about Kismet and you talk about a book meeting its cultural moment. It also just has to be a really good book. Like there's something, there's something with the benefit of hindsight anyway, that can feel undeniable about books that take off. It's just so excellent, but there are plenty of excellent books that don't take off. So you can argue it both ways.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's no doubt that she's put the work in, you know, she's really connected. She's super committed. She's got, you know, work that she believes in that she's doing all the time. So, yeah, I mean, again, when people, you know, are like, yeah, great book and no one read it. Yeah, I've worked on some great books that no one read. But for me, again, it's not a referendum on talent. It's just a question of where might there be the next opportunity or, you know, what what could happen that would change that for this book and this author? You know, what might compel a publisher to reissue the book that perhaps didn't find as much of an audience as it might have deserved with the next novel? Or, you know, what might I be able to do to just get this author a better seat at the table when it comes to talking about the next book? Because it is really like, it's a long term thing. You know, there are some people that I've been working with my whole career, off and on, when they have a project and There's some success that's sort of out of the gate. But for a lot, a lot, a lot of people, often that kind of public visibility, it's not necessarily coming from the first book. And I'm not talking about, you know, books that a publisher paid a lot of money for that are getting advertised like in the subway. This is not, you know, largely what I work on. Um, I'm really talking about the sort of books that, you know, the person's not famous on day one. And so they're really out there like knocking on doors and, and looking for a readership and trying to develop an audience, you know, in tandem with their publisher, but really thinking about like, okay, how can I put this out in the world? And this happens at parties a lot because people are always like, oh, what do you do? And I say I work on books and then they're like, oh, anyone that I know? And I'm like, yeah, like a few people that you've heard of, but, you know, a lot of success in publishing is not immediate. You know, I'm like, I'm working on books because we have a collective idea that literature matters and will outlive us. And some of this art may become immortal. It's not really like a 10-week timeline.
0: Right. Right. And so you have authors that you're advising, as you've been saying, to look for opportunities that can introduce them to more readers or put them in a better position mm-hmm. like in, the, in the industry context. But you're also, I imagine, advising authors to just keep Working and writing books and like getting to the next project, because sometimes I think authors can kind of get fixated on the success or perceived failure of project A to the detriment of project B, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you want to think about it like when the book comes out in these kind of three to six month increments, because sometimes people give up before I would. So I'm often in touch with writers kind of periodically to say, Do you want to interview this person for their paperback launch when they come to your town? Or, I just saw this opportunity. I thought of you. You know, you should really try it. Because I do think for about a year after the book comes out, there is a sense like, you know, you should have it in gear. Like you're really out there, kind of looking for whatever you can find in terms of potential. But then after that, yeah, there comes a moment when you do need to start writing the next book. Absolutely. And having faith that. With every book as your backlist grows, the kind of reader that you're hoping to connect with, you know, like me, like you, I'm sure when you read a book you like, the first thing you say is like, what else is the person written? I want to go and find it. So I have faith in that kind of reader because I'm that kind of reader. You're that kind of reader.
0: Well, what about understanding media, which is a big part of your job and mm-hmm. understanding news and how media people conceive of what constitutes the newsworthiness of something and in you know for the purposes of this conversation the newsworthiness of a book Mm -hmm. like can you just talk about that because that's a fundamental piece of it is it not it's about when you're thinking about how to do outreach on behalf of an author for a book you do have to assess the book's what thematic concerns its Mm -hmm. potential its potential interest to A general reading public, and then you have to position it accordingly in terms of outreach.
1: Yeah. So the big criteria there are going to be, and this is what I think frustrates a lot of people, is that the biggest criteria is that you're already famous, right? So an already famous person writing another book is news because famous people are news. I think that's the thing that people get been out of shape about a lot because you're like, why is this person getting 46 reviews and I'm getting none? Well, it's like, because that's kind of the number one thing. The editor at that newspaper or magazine or outlet has a responsibility to get traffic. And so their idea is like, you know, what's the traffic going to go to A, a household name? So that's sort of part one. So you're competing with that. That is an issue because a book just being published, that set of information cannot be news to a books editor because there are hundreds of books published every week. So it can only be news if it rises above that. So a famous person is going to rise above that, but also an animating idea, you know? So if there's something different about the book or there's some aspect of our culture or something that it adds to the conversation that hasn't been covered before, that can be newsworthy. And that's something that I think is a little bit hard to do, If you're not already doing it all the time, because people will sometimes tell me things that they think are news, and I'm like, that's not news. But um, if you can kind of reach into the work and just sort of think like, okay, what is different about this book? Because every book is different, but like how might that sort of distinguish it, you know, when I'm talking about it, then there's something there. And so that's sort of, that's a tricky one. But I think often, yeah, there's a lot of things that could make a book news in that regard. It could be, you know, a cultural affinity that's not well represented, a perspective that's not been published a ton, some sort of background or thing about the writer that is kind of interesting or different in terms of what they've done. It could be something like working on a high profile Hollywood project, or it could be something like, you know, having a kind of everyday job that someone wouldn't expect to also give rise to being a debut novelist. Um, that's why you see attention for people who publish a book in midlife, right? Because the idea that you might be publishing your first book after age 40 or 50, I would say, um, that could be news if the expectation of the audience is not that. So it's sort of cultivating this idea of like, well, what is, it's not necessarily surprising because much of the news we read is not surprising, but it's this sense of like, well, What about this information is a deviation from the kind of expected storyline, right? So the editor is kind of reading the pitch, and they're sort of thinking like, you know, when I I pitch The Daily Show, right, the dominant cliche that never goes away is that young people aren't that politically engaged. They don't vote as much. You know, they're not as up on the issues, blah, 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 blah. That's been around forever, so I immediately went straight to the heart of that and said, "People say that, but that's not true because this this author's you know 25, so that's already news." So I think it's really thinking about, um, you know, what in that book has hasn't been showcased in a way. You know, that's one aspect of it. That's kind of when you're talking. I would say about national and international news, right? Like, there's got to be some plot twist that is going to make it different than the usual story where the editors who's read 600 pitches a day gets to the second or third sentence and it's like oh i didn't expect that that's a bit different so that's the sort of premise for how you write a pitch and then the second piece of it is that you're always news where you live and this is often overlooked by people you know if you go to a party in new york or a lot of other big cities there might be 60 other authors in the room minimum But in most places, there are not that many authors. It's kind of exciting and unusual and different and interesting for most people. So I see a lot of people kind of miss an opportunity there because they don't sort of think about like, oh, well, how might I use this locally? You know, how might I connect with people? Um, Even if you're living in a big city, there's something people really like about saying like, oh, here's an L.A. author. Here's a Baltimore author. Here's a person you know, with roots in such and such a place. And a direct example that I can give you for that is I was doing publicity for the Wyndham Campbell Prizes one year, and it's a, it's a big prize. It goes to nine different people in very different disciplines. So it's often very tricky to find an editor who knows all of the names and it's, can be uh, a prize for a book or a body of work. So it can be a total surprise. It's not necessarily the shortlisted authors that you see Mm -hmm. everywhere. So it's often um, very challenging to get features written because people don't necessarily already have the level of familiarity with the writers that they can just file 800 words. So one particular year, I was just having a tough time connecting with American press. And so I just I still had to obviously do the job. And so I was like, well, what can I do that's different?" And so I thought, let me go look up where the American recipients are from, and I'm going to pitch their hometown papers. And it was like an entirely new wave of coverage. I think I had the entire front page of the Detroit newspaper's art section. There was a piece in the Twin Cities about a playwright that was so popular. They then ran it in the print weekend edition. And that added forever more the hometowns to the bios of their prize recipients because we were like, oh, that's newsworthy. You know, people are always interested in someone from a town getting an accolade you know, getting some kind of professional recognition in the larger world. So I think there's different audiences that you might be talking to, where different things might be news, you know, often there's stuff in publishing that's news to us that is news to literally no one else. You know, it's exciting gossip about someone with a job that, 50 people know about and you know it rivets everyone on social media for two or three days that's also news so it really has to be something that um, you think about because a book does not as you say come out in a vacuum it comes out into the world and so thinking about how your book might fit into the cultural conversation or the zeitgeist and then sort of working on that accordingly I think is really important.
0: Okay and when it comes to understanding the news and differentiating a book in that context, in the marketplace, it sounds to me like it might be easier. And I think I've heard this said more than once that it's easier perhaps to market or publicize a work of nonfiction than it is to publicize a work of fiction. Because if somebody is writing a memoir about being raised by circus clowns, it's like whoa, sure. let's interview it's that news. person. Yeah, it's news, right? But it's if it's news somebody for every
1: parenting editor, for yeah,
0: sure. yeah. But if somebody wrote a novel about somebody who was raised by circus clowns, like maybe that's interesting, and you could get some coverage. But it might not be quite as easy to hook an editor. Is that accurate?
1: They work in different ways. I mean, like basically, what you have to think about is like there's the sort like every beat. You know, a beat is just a, a field of expertise for a journalist or an industry. You know, it's operating on its own, but it's also connecting to the larger world. So you have to kind of think about those two things. So a book can be very successful in publishing media. And as we all know, like no one in the grocery store will have ever heard of it. But then there's like news that makes that level of awareness. There people are completely aware of it. And so, you know, that often has to do with a book tipping over into popular culture For instance, when Chelsea Hodson's book was read by, I think it was Kendall Jenner on a boat, you know, suddenly that was front page news. And so I think that nonfiction is sort of perceived as being like, again, a pretty like straight down the field pitch, you know, like, okay, who's talking about this issue? Let me get it there. Whereas with fiction, you really have to talk to people who already understand fiction, but also are familiar with the players. Because again, they're making these decisions about like, who published it? You know, can I get some idea of the relevance based on what I know about the writer, what I know about the press, you know, all of those kind of levers are sort of moving when someone's deciding to do coverage. So it is a little bit different.
0: So if somebody is out there listening, and they are about to publish their book. Their book is coming Mm -hmm. out in six months, and they're trying to put together a game plan for publicity. I guess the first question is when to begin. Like if somebody's got a book in the offing, like how far out do you begin to make a strategy?
1: Yeah, you don't want to make it too early, but you want to be thinking about the news opportunities as you go along. So one of the new news opportunities that's kind of emerged post-2020 in my experience is the cover reveal. That didn't exist at all as a concept, like even three years ago. But now, um, or it wasn't something I did all the time. Now, I really encourage every author, and what you have to do for a cover reveal, and this is often where it gets a bit tricky or frustrating, it cannot be anywhere. So it can't be on the product pages, it can't be online, it can't be fed out to Amazon. So the moment that you, as an author, agree to your final jacket, you really need to say, I'd like to organize a cover reveal. And that means either at a publication that you've contributed to or one of the bigger kind of online sites, you take them a package and say, you know, would you like to reveal the cover? And then that can range for everything from them posting the image on their social media to you know, asking you to write an essay about the inspiration behind it, even talking to the designer in some cases. So I think that's just a great example of trying to think at every point of kind of what the news is, because I often see people announcing things on their own social media, which I understand that's what it's intended for. But you also want to think as you're trying to raise your public profile, you know, at what point could I maybe be sharing this information with someone who has a larger audience? At what point might it be news? And how can I kind of package that way? So that's a kind of very early one. And I think that it does make an impact because publishers are really, really interested in pre-orders now. Sometimes they'll say to me like, oh, we're not so interested because that trend has passed. But then you hear about another author where you know, the publisher is deciding their print run based on their pre-order. So I think getting out in front with a cover reveal is a really smart way to have people say like, oh, wow, like people are talking about your book. That's interesting. That suddenly changes things because they weren't talking about your book yesterday. So that's news.
0: Well, and the cover makes it real, right? It's like you have something to hang on to. It's abstract until there's a cover, it seems like.
1: Yeah, and it's hard for authors sometimes, especially when the, uh, the book doesn't look like the book looks in your head. But I'm like, yeah, it's, you know it's you're just putting it out in the world now it's a media tool just do it yeah so that's a big one and then um i encourage people to have a launch i'm really pro event i love events i think they're really vital i think being in a room with other people is one of the best things that we can do and so um i always encourage people to like not be going into your local bookstore if you're lucky enough to have one for the first time when you ask for an event but having it or the library Um, or, you know, various other places. But, you know, if there are book events where you live or in the nearby metro area, being a bit familiar with where they might be or festivals and so on. So starting to have a sense of, you know, where you might go, where there might be a receptive audience, I think is really, really great. Because a lot of times um, people want to launch in New York. And I understand I lived there for a long time. But um, when I usually ask people like, oh, which event was the best for you? It's always the hometown event. It's always the one that you're, you know, your dentist and your cat sitter came to. That feels amazing (laughs) in a different way. So um, I think that's a really good thing to be thinking about. You often want to think about that, you know, anywhere from two to three months in advance because you need about a month to promote an event. It's more than one announcement. And that is another thing that comes up a lot in my work is that people don't want to be repetitive. When I did get the word out for poets and writers, that was a big thing we worked on a lot it was kind of getting over this sense of like, oh, I'm bombarding people. And I'm like, well, I like to think that people are following you because they're genuinely interested in what's going on with your life. So I think it's great if you want to share stuff. But remember, no one really sees something the first time it gets posted. It's the second, third, fourth impression where you're like, oh, yeah, I love that person. I need to listen to that podcast. Let me actually send the link to myself now. You know, let me open the tab. That doesn't happen the first time. So, you know, being prepared to like send out that first email four weeks in advance, the second email three weeks in advance, you know, posting about it two times, two weeks before, you know, posting the week of a couple of times. So, you're going to want a runway for a lot of things. same thing with if you have an idea for an essay that you may want to write around publication, you don't have to write it, you know, three to six months in advance, but it's great to have that in mind because, you know, you might want to pitch a place that you've written for before that you're pretty confident that you could get in, but you might also want to pitch a reach place, you know, and they might get back to you for a couple of weeks or they might be scheduling a month or two out. So I think just remembering that, having any time at all pre pub is kind of a luxury. So you want to just sort of think like, okay, how can I kind of stretch it out? But you know, there's not a lot you can do. You know, people often love to announce the book deal or, you know, that's cool. It's fun. It's nice to get that kind of machinery going so that the people in your life that might be able to open a door for you are aware that you have a project. But I would say, yeah, most of the work happens like six months in advance.
0: And in terms of like authors coming to you, like sometimes I would imagine you are contracted by the publisher, but more often it's authors hiring you as an independent contractor to be their publicist. Is that the way that it usually works?
1: Yeah, it's a mix. I would say my loyalty is always to the authors, but yeah, sometimes the publishers pay me. Sure.
0: Okay. So for authors who are listening or prospective authors who are listening, when do they need somebody like you versus like if they're being published by say Random House and there's the mm-hmm. machinery internally at Random House and their publicity department that's going to go to bat for this thing they paid seven figures for the book you know that's a that's the rare air case where probably you have in-house coverage that's going to be sufficient yeah but it's a significant investment to hire a li- mm-hmm. a, a freelance sure. publicist and just in terms of like when they when an author would be advised to consider it and then what they could expect in exchange.
1: Yeah. I would say I generally talk people out of hiring a freelance publicist unless there are like specific circumstances of their life where it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who's like, yes, if you're already a lead title, what you need is a little more publicity. I'm like, I'm sure you'll be fine. You know, so I think for a lot of people, I don't like to be disappointing, but I often do sort of respond and say, like, I think you'll be, you know, well covered or, you know, that's, that's not a situation in which I would hire a publicist. Often for the people that hire me, there's usually some reason that they maybe feel like they're, there's something challenging about, you know, getting into the public eye for them. There's maybe some aspect of their personal story that they'd like to highlight, but you know they want to make sure it's positioned exactly right. Or um, again, the career stuff is really tough. If you get to a certain point of your career and people have an idea about you that's very fixed, that can often take a little bit more than you know a publishing campaign to kind of think about and work on.
0: To work on changing I, it, you mean? Like shifting perspective? Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. I would say to hire any freelance publicist You usually want to think about that a year to two years in advance, just because um, it is an incredibly difficult job. I have been supporting myself as a freelancer, as a single woman living in like major cities (laughs) for 20 years. Like it, and I don't, I have not inherited money or married it, as many of you know. So, like, it's really, really, really hard to sustain that as a business. So, there's often not you know, 30 or 40 independent publicists, there will often just be kind of a handful whose life circumstances and professional circumstances are, are working in such a way that they can balance it. So you want to kind of think about the person that has the point of view that you really like. I think that's also really important. I hear a lot of discussion of publicists is kind of like a generic thing that you get from like the publicist store when like fundamentally it is really about... What the person's relationships and approach, again, as you and I have talked about even in this conversation, like the media landscape is incredibly complex and complicated and there are outdated parts of it or narratives that, you know, don't necessarily reflect the way that we find things out now. And yet there are still, you know, absolutely massive kind of gatekeeper organizations and publications that can make a tremendous difference in your work. So it's like you want to work with someone who can kind of think about it all, and then come up with a strategy that's going to be custom for you. So I think that's a key. I would say I encourage people to just write me all the time, because I always refer work to other publicists that are starting out. I have a real soft spot for people Especially that I've worked in house and kind of been laid off through no fault of their own, just because the cash flow is really, really difficult to sustain. So I often will refer pe- work to people who I know are just starting out and can work, you know, on an emerging author's budget. And it'll be really meaningful for both of those people to find some success. So I'm like, anyone can write me anytime. And I will always kind of give them advice for where they should go if I'm not the right fit. But yeah, no, for me, it really, I try to keep my list pretty short so that I can give everything like as much attention as possible. So sometimes I have an opening in the next season. Sometimes I don't. So it really just matters that you just kind of start talking to people and yeah, just writing people and and doing a bit of, there's not so much research because, you know, as a publicist, you should not be getting a lot of publicity. (laughs) Like Your client should be getting the publicity. I'd be a little wary of a publicist I saw everywhere. So I think it's really important to, um, just kind of observe the work that you think is done really well and and how that work might be applied to your career and and who you think might really get it. Like there's some people who specialize in nonfiction. There's some people who love working with poets. There's some people who do almost totally small press fiction. You know, like there's just so many different sets of experience and skills out there. So I do try and matchmake whenever I can.
0: What's the general range? I know it probably varies wildly. Like you said, uh, debut Mm -hmm. author, small press budget for somebody who's early in their career versus somebody like you who's been at this for a long time. Like what's the range just broadly speaking?
1: Broadly speaking, like I would not expect it to cost less than $10,000 in most cases, unless you're catching someone who's like just left an in-house position and like has to pay their rent and you know can start tomorrow because a lot of this work gets booked really far in advance. And then for like an agency where someone is employing people and they have health insurance and so on, it might be like twenty thousand or up. It really just depends for, uh,
0: for how long? For a season? Like three months or what like
1: No I think those are a little longer. I think those can be like six months or, you know, Long. It really just depends. And also like every single publicist sets their own kind of description of what a campaign is and how they work. So some people might say, um, my work is time based, you know, I'm going to be on the project for so long. And then and then we're done. I've heard of that. Where like the day that they're finished, they are really finished. And then there are other publicists that might say, you know, we're going to work on these specific milestones, and then we're going to kind of get through that. My work tends to be time-based around publication, like checking in at different points when I think people really kind of need support and sort of deep strategic thinking. And then also kind of figuring out like, okay, what's sort of your plan kind of going forward, like towards the end? Like, what do you kind of need to keep this going on your own? And how can I help you? think about that strategy and kind of get you in a place where you feel really confident and that you're not like, you know, suddenly at loose ends.
0: So we've talked about how review coverage in contemporary literary publishing is different than maybe it used to be. And it's hard. A lot of Mm -hmm. books only get, like you say, that one review. It could be like the Publishers Weekly or the Kirkus Review and that's it. And there's no major paper that covers it. That happens all the time. Sure. And I think what I've also heard you talk about is how each book and each publicity campaign is sort of bespoke. It has to do with where the author is from. It has to do with what the book speaks to. You have to get creative and I'm like imagining like, like writerly people listening, thinking to themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, in today's world, what moves the needle? Like if I had to prioritize in a general sense for a publicity campaign that I'm either going to be undertaking with the assistance of someone like you Mm -hmm. or the in-house publicist at my publisher or just doing it by myself. Mm -hmm. Like is there something like getting on The Daily Show that is Mm -hmm. going to really guarantee book sales pretty reliably? Like is there there a home run out there? I, I know Oprah is always the one people point to, but... What works in a really significant way to get a book into people's hands?
1: Yeah, I mean, that worked in 2004. Obviously now we don't live in such a, you know, everybody does this every night kind of thing. So there is that. And I think even the shift that we've seen in social media in the past one to two years, like that's certainly being borne out, right? Like even the sense of like, oh, everyone is on one app is no longer obviously the case. And then, a the thing I think about a lot is that we're kind of bombarded with so many things that we couldn't possibly read or experience all of them. So, like, a couple of weeks ago, there was like a major book. And I was like, "I feel bad for this person. Like, I haven't heard about this book at all. You know, and I'm like, plugged in right. And then I went and read, and it's like they had gotten amazing coverage. It just had not reached me somehow, you know? And so that's something that I think about a lot is like, It's not so much one thing that I see as kind of doing it, but what happens is like every single instance that you get of someone talking about your work or the relevance of your work or the impact of your work that allows you to then relay that into the next step. So I'll give you a great example. Very conventional publicity thinking is about kind of like, I know that you know this, Emailing someone over and over and over again to be like, Brad, 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 Brad. Can they be on the show? Brad, Brad, I'm just circling back. Brad, I'm checking in. (laughs) Hi, Brad. I hope this finds you well. So I never send those emails kind of famously. I'm like, the person has the information in their inbox. If they see it somewhere online, they can like seek it out. Maybe I'll send them a copy. Like I might text them if they're a friend of mine and I really think they've missed the boat. But I don't send people like five or six or seven emails. I will only send a follow-up email when I have material information that is of interest. So for me, those like little blurbs are really, really helpful. So if I can say like, oh, cool, this person just got a really fun mention today that, you know, is kind of pop culture and that's really cool. And I, I really hope that they would be on such and such thing I'm going to make sure that the person that I know would be interested sees it, whether I send it to them directly, you know, or I share it to social media or something like that. So for me, it's all about this kind of idea of momentum because it's like, not everything is weighed the same. Like you might get national coverage, but you might not feel it until you go on the talk show that airs at 1230 where you live that everybody listens to. And that is the sort of thing. It's like, For me, it's much more about like, what is the growing conversation about the book? You know, is it representing the book the way that you would like the book to be talked about? If yes, great, keep going. If not, you know, think about whose voice might be missing from the conversation, you know, or, you know, what can I do? This, this one really interesting dimension of the book just isn't getting picked up. Okay, we'll try and think about something that you might do to bring that in. So it's always kind of, evolving for me with a forward momentum. And then ideally at the end of a campaign, you know, it's kind of like, I can sort of imagine, you know, the book is in a bottle at the top of the waves kind of bobbing and I might lose sight of it, but I know it never sinks.
0: That's a lovely image. (laughs) Yeah. If I don't
1: feel that way, I don't quit. (laughs) You know, I really, I keep going until I feel like okay, this person's got a plan. They may or may not take my advice. They don't have to, we're all adults, but you know, I've sort of laid it out and been like this, I think would be really great. I think you should do this. And you know, there's always something that feels undone. There will always be something where I'll think like, Oh, I'd love to crack, you know, that local media. You know, I haven't really been able to crack like local Baltimore book media which there's a surprising amount of, but I just haven't figured it out yet. Because that's kind of new to me to be in this media market. I don't necessarily know all the players yet. So I don't obviously don't think about it all the time, because I only have a couple of books that that's relevant for. But with every kind of opportunity that I have to try it, I try again. And then when I make it happen for the author that I want to make it happen for, like, of course, I'm gonna mention the book from a year ago that I also hoped it might happen for. Because Like a good book doesn't expire.
0: Okay, so you're speaking to this now and you've spoken to it multiple times over the course of our conversation and I want to drill down into it a little bit because it is so central to book publicity and so central to so many different aspects of working life. And it has to do with communication. Mm -hmm. You talk about writing pitches. Mm -hmm. There's an art to it. Yeah, And you talk about not sending superfluous follow-up emails over and over mm-hmm. again and just hammering people or sending like the carpet bombing people with like the yeah. the copy and paste letter or whatever. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've always admired about you in our correspondence, I would call it there's a certain elegance to Lauren Sarand. You have an elegance to you and mm-hmm. there's an artfulness in the way that you communicate. It, it's obvious that there is a personal touch to it, but there's also, uh, it's very clear that some thought has been put into it. And can you just talk a little bit? Because I think, I mean, I'll give you a, a kind of glaring example of the wrong way to do it. But sometimes writers will come at me and just be like, hey, I have a book out. I want to be on your show. I just listened to it. It sounds good. And you, I'm just like, okay, like, <laughs> I, you know, okay. And then I, I won't respond right. because I have a lot coming at me. And then the person will just start hammering my inbox and then hammering my DMs on social media and I'm just like I can't with that like that is so obviously not the way to go but what is the way to go because I think that's maybe an extreme example but there are other people who might have a more discerning approach that still fails
1: well the reason that failed the reason that the long copy paste letters fail is because they're too long and they don't think about you right So the person's pitch of like, I have a book, that's not news to you. You've got an inbox full of not news pitches. But if the person were to say, you know, Brad, here's something that when I read your most recent book really connected with me. And although I too am exploring auto fiction that also feels like ultra contemporary fiction, I think I've gone about it in a slightly different way. But what I think would be of interest to you is this. That's a really different email. And that reflects that not just that the person has heard the show, but the person has thought about what you might be looking for. And so I think that when a pitch fails, it's just that the person isn't looking for it. And that's really, really hard to convey sometimes to authors because people are just kind of like, well, could you do it more? Or could you do it harder? Could you do it again? And I'm like, I can go back with a different strategy for sure. But Everybody is looking for something. And I remember, you know, I get rejected all day long. And the things that people will say to the publicists, they would never say, like, to an author's face. And then they're very helpful because it's very informative for me in a way that just kind of goes into my work that I don't tell anyone about. But, it, you know, they'll say, like, I don't like this kind of book. I'm not interested. I'll never cover this genre, whatever. So I keep that to myself, but then I might shift gears and I might kind of think about something else. And so I was waking up one day and I was like, oh, another long day of like so many messages like this. Like, how am I going to get through it? And then I was like, you know, I have ideas about what I'm looking for today. Like when I've got a few minutes off, I'm going to search for something or the book I want to read later. And I was like, everybody feels that way. And so maybe I need to think about this differently and I need to think about how to be a better matchmaker. And so I think that is something that gets lost a lot. People want to think like, oh, well, now the internet allows me to send 600 pitches at the same time, you know? And I'm like, well, if you're trying to test messaging in a broad way, use social media, right? If I do a social media tweet or a post on Facebook or Instagram or something, I it's a Right away, you know how effective it is, right? Like people respond to certain things. They don't respond to other things. So I think that's a really nice way of testing messaging. So like when you put stuff on social media, see what people respond to. If it's low or if it's especially high, take note of that because that's going to be really, really helpful to you when you're positioning the book. You're getting an actual real-time public response on what feels most compelling to a lot of the audience that you're trying to reach. So I think people, again, that's something you get trained to do so it's hard to kind of train people to do that but often if an author says to me like oh i want to be an a b and c publication i'm sort of like okay well like what is a recent type of coverage there that you've seen that you think is really similar to your book or you know or there's an absence that is sort of u-shaped in this place because that's what i would have to pitch into i would either have to say like oh, I noticed that you recently did this book. I've got another book that I think if you like that one is really very similar. Or, you know, I noticed that you haven't featured this kind of author and I would really love for you to take a moment to consider this person. But a pitch for me is like six sentences because like you can click on things, you can reply and ask for more. You can do whatever you wanna do if you wanna have the conversation because it's a little bit like thinking about, you know, that thing that they say, like, oh, the cover letter is just to get the interview, right? Like, not the job. It's just to have a conversation, to get the recruiter to meet with you and to talk with you. It's very similar with editors, with critics, with booksellers. It's like, you're just trying to sort of engage someone enough that they give you some feedback, which may be a very quick, like, not for me, which again, is really informative. It has kind of helped you understand, like, it's not going to go, like, down that road. Silence is also a very polite no. No. That's something that's really hard for people to understand. So often if someone says like, have you written this critic or this producer? And I'll say like, I have, you know, I'll give them three days. If they haven't written back in three business days, like we're going to move on. You know, we might even move on today if I think there's quite a low chance of that being successful. So it's a little bit of a learned behavior, but I think it's really, really important to just be taking all of that information as feedback, right? Like the first time the person wrote you, if it was something you were interested in, you would have replied, right? But it was the sort of turn off of it where you're like, well, obviously, I'm getting bombarded by people that want to be on the show. Wanting to be on the show is not news. But demonstrating to me why you might be a compelling guest. Because again, going back to what I was saying earlier, everyone has a lot of faith for this idea that they might have made a mistake, and they might have overlooked something really, really good. And you either experience that because suddenly everyone you know seems to be talking about a book that you'd maybe written off or not taken seriously or maybe had just made a snap judgment about that was not right because now you see people talking about the book in a way that's different and surprising and like merits sort of further exploration or someone makes an appeal to you and you just think like oh I I saw that go by but now I can see that maybe it is for me so it's a lot of just thinking about who might be interested in who might be looking and being really agnostic about that? Like, everything is in some way of equal value to me because I can use it all. I can share a post that's really flattering. I can send a book to a reviewer. There still are like a couple of sort of major things, but I hesitate to define them as kind of goals because for every, you know, huge feature in X magazine that. I have done that has been life-changing I've also heard from people that like you know nothing happened after they got that thing they dreamed about and now they've got writer's block and can I do an emergency consultation for them and so (laughs) I have to kind of you know be balanced so one time I had this um this really actually cool thing it doesn't happen a lot it was a quite high profile mention for a small press book that I was working on earlier this year and I isn't something that I had prioritized but I was like very flattered and I had a bit of a kick in my step and I went to the post office and the um postal workers said how are you doing and I said I got just got something in this thing and they said what is that and I was like right and so I think it's just important to always have a sense of you know gravity about it of like it might be the thing that changes everything for me sure you know it might be um being on a a local show and then someone hears me talk and they are a commissioning editor at a publishing house or, you know, they are in a position to give me a job opportunity that would really advance things. It's like, there's so many ways that success looks like in life. And I think when people kind of come to publicity and they say, you know, I want to make my book a bestseller. The first thing I say is like publicity doesn't do that. Like ads do that. The publisher does that you know, people that get books into Costco and Target do that, you know, like, there are a lot of levers that you can pull. But like, those are not typically the ones that publicity kind of generates, it has the capacity, of course, to produce this like, exciting, dynamic, unknown results. But that's because you're working in the news cycle. And that's not something that anyone can guarantee or like, even if you could say, like, I have a great relationship with this person, I think they'll love the book. You know, the impact can be really different depending on the day. I was working on January 6th, 2021, trying to get coverage, you know, for books. And immediately it was like, there will be no coverage of books for quite some time, actually. right. right. And, you know, I actually switched gears because I was doing a novel for a publisher called House of Anansi. And it was a Western. And I thought, you know, I, I can't even pitch a, a novel today but I had also agreed to work on a translated biography of Hannah Arendt for them. And I was like, yeah, if I have extra time, I'll do it because I was working on them on an ongoing basis. I was like, but I'll focus on the novel. And I was like, I'm going to set the novel aside for the afternoon. And I ended up just like writing to a lot of political correspondents and got a massive interview for them that was everywhere. That was just absolutely wall to wall and a really interesting sub stack at the kind of peak of when those were just sort of something you clicked on the second you saw it. And yeah, it totally changed the course of that book. And it's something I was just talking about a couple of days ago with someone that had seen it when it came out. So it really has a lot to do with your ability to just to like listen to the present moment, like really, really listen to what people are talking about. Doesn't mean again that that's a referendum on what matters, just as what people are talking about and how does what you're doing kind of relate to that or how might it be a part of a cultural conversation that's happening right now or how might, you know, your fiction be made kind of tangible to people in the form of, you know, an event or an interview or a conversation that kind of grounds things in the present. it's the biggest difference between fiction and nonfiction, right? Is like nonfiction often reflects historical or contemporary events that you can then, you know, give a time stamp to. Whereas fiction, you know, it comes out into the world and and we have to kind of bring it down to us for it to live in the present.
0: Well, and speaking of differentiating, I mean, you just touched on this. It's worth like It's worth talking about a little bit is the difference between publicity and marketing. You talked about how publishers <laughs> have the ability to kind of pull those levers and get mm-hmm. the book into Costco and Target, and that's not what you do. A publicist strategizes and tries to manage the creation of a public conversation about a book and an author is that even mm-hmm. close is that even close to yeah. on the mark That's Do you know exa-
1: that, that is like a bullseye absolutely yeah so it, it, the public is the keyword because the keyword in marketing is market right so with marketing you're typically talking about things that cost money right because it's access to a market so that would be advertising and it would be different promotions it gets a little bit of a gray area when you start to talk about like Instagram influencers and book talk and I've started to sort of see how exhausted podcasts are actually part of this category for me there are some podcasts that I do consider like elevated to the level of a media outlet like this one but there's other venues where I'm like this is just a person with kids And a job trying to enjoy themselves like they don't need to get 100 pitches like I can follow them. And if they request a book, I'm happy to send it. I'm happy to just distribute it out in the world. But like I'm not asking for anything of someone that is not in like a kind of in a position to be. It's like this idea of like, oh, well, we're not going to buy ads, but we are going to bombard people you know, with the opportunity to get a free hardcover in exchange for creating content. I'm like, I don't know that the scales really balance on that one for me all the time. So um, that can be marketing. I'm more like marketing from my perspective is like when you open bookshop and there's a banner for a book and you're like, oh, okay, there it is. There it is, <laughs> So yeah. Yeah, uh, but there's like really interesting marketing you can do. There's a lot of, and I've done, you know, all kinds of sort of creative strategies because for me, it's like, It doesn't have to be a break the bank kind of proposition to be successful. It's from my perspective, it's a little naive to think that all of these publications and all of these people are just going to create like this, like really intricate, sophisticated, high art kind of criticism for nothing you know, with no ads by publishers and, you know, no material support and that people are going to write for free just for the vibes. Like, I don't really subscribe to that. It's not my worldview. So I do think marketing is really, really, really important. And I do encourage a lot of small presses that don't typically think about marketing. I, I will often say like, well, let's talk about what a kind of entry level ad might look like for you. You know, let's talk about some of these smaller publications especially ones that I think are connected to a place or are just very committed to, you know, just really smart, intelligent, thoughtful criticism. I'm like, yeah, like, sure, you can pitch it for review, but could you support that place first on the press level? You know, could you make it possible for this person to have the time to go through your pitches in the future? So I'm not like down on marketing at all. There was a kind of historic thing where publicity was seen as sort of like, Free marketing, but I don't really think of it that way. I think publicity, you're kind of doing something else. You're sort of taking something out into the world and you're connecting it to like a broader constellation. With marketing, it really is about, you know, cultivating the consumer, meeting the audience in the marketplace, and recognizing that we live in a capitalist society. And like a lot of that is really familiar and essential to how we live. And so not kind of minimizing it or acting like it's unimportant. So I will often advise, especially my small press clients. To, um, to be thinking about, like, how they're sustaining the world that they're looking to so, on a long-term, regular way. Oh. But for the particular author, something might come up every now and then. You know, I've seen some people do smart things with, like, library marketing or specific newsletters or you know, something that you read all the time that, you know, if you could just get into that magazine, it would be amazing, but there's not really a path to editorial right now. So it depends kind of on the situation, but by and large, that's like less than 10% of my time.
0: Okay. So, and another thing I want to cover just a little bit more, because I think it will be on the minds of listeners is book tour. You mentioned that Mm -hmm. you are pro event you're pro launch at least yeah and getting people in a room and this is still i think a big part of how books roll out today most people at least do a launch event but i think a lot of authors especially if they are debuting have this kind of dream of a book tour that seems to be mm-hmm. sort of like the fancy part. Like you said, you know, you return to St. Paul and you need a bodyguard. You know, it's the it's the ideal outcome. But yeah. what like what do you typically advise clients who might be in that situation? Small press, okay. like or, or yeah. something like that, and they're like, well, should I do a tour and how long of a tour? And yeah. What about tours? I
1: don't know if I'll be quoted in it, but I did do an interview on this exact topic on Friday with poets and writers that will be in the March issue. I have no idea if I'll actually make it out of background, but it is a super interesting topic that I could talk about all day because I love events and a lot of people are down on events because they find them hard to make successful, which again, going back to my emerging artists events, it is very difficult to get people in a room. You know, and I did a series for Barnes and Noble called Upstairs at the Square for like seven years where we had like Patty Smith and David Lynch and like huge, huge, huge crowds and we would pair them with a writer. And I was expected to, if not get a thousand people there every month, which is a fire hazard. So not really a thousand people, but a full house. Um, that was the mandate, you know, so I had to always think about like, okay, who could kind of bring in a crowd? And if I can get Vampire Weekend on opening weekend, who do I pair them with? So you really have to think very deeply about like where the audience is going to come from, because that is often a tough thing for people to get because bookstores by and large, you know, they're very, very deeply rooted in their community. But like there just aren't a lot of cities that have a committed group of people that are going to literary events five nights a week. So it's often really hard for a bookstore to deliver like like there's not a base audience of someone that's going out six nights a week. And like even in New York, like, yes, but then you've got three other events up against you. And so that's going to be really challenging because they will often be like very high profile. So you just have to kind of work on your room and your crowd. But I would say like you want to go somewhere where you have a connection. That's a big one. So we're talking about where you live, any place you grew up or spent like a year or more. So that might be like you had a job you had an interesting chapter in your past, you went to school somewhere, you were, you know, just doing something in some place that you put a little bit of roots down in. There's a few people you can call. When it comes to touring, I do sometimes see the kind of like destination touring idea with people where they're like, well, I have always wanted to go to Santa Fe. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> me too. That's a vacation. So what I would say is if you can visualize five people that will be in the room, not five people that you can write on Facebook, but like five people that if I texted them right now and I was like, Brad told me that if I booked him an event in this town that you would be there and maybe even bring a couple friends and they would be like, oh yeah, totally. Like Brad is completely legit. That's true. Then yeah, do it. Absolutely. But you got to be able to actually like visualize the actual people because, you know, there's just not a lot of local listings and that just has to do with, you know, changing media. There's sometimes the possibility for really interesting local media. You can just get lucky, especially with that local radio. But, um, I wouldn't make my book plans. Like I wouldn't make plans based on that. And I just had a DM today from someone who, um, You know, asked me for a book and then said they were going to talk to people in a city where I have always had a lot of trouble booking events because the bookstores in that city only like people from that city to approach them. They don't kind of like outside pitches. And it just never works when I try it my way. Like I have to have, and they were like, I'm going to pitch some of the local bookstores. And I was like, that's amazing. I'm here to support you. I know for a fact that in that city, when it comes from someone living there, it's like a really serious thing. And you probably will get a couple of yeses. So um, I think it really matters about, like, thinking about that. Like, I spend a huge amount of my own personal money to travel to as many of my author's events as I can because I like to know firsthand what it's like in a place so that I can be an effective strategist and I can really advise people well. So I like to be like, well... I was just in LA and like, this is what I think, you know, this bookstore could do for you that, you know, you maybe have it considered, or, you know, you should really think about doing a live podcast in this place, or I've just been to that city and while I had a lot of fun, it was one of the tougher events that I've done. And unless there's a magazine or or a local person who's really high profile that has not left their house in four or five years, and therefore it would be news. I don't think like now is the time, let's look for a festival or just kind of put it on the back burner. So I like to really be able to say to people, you know, this is something that I think could be successful for you. So let's try it. Or to be like, I'm just not sure that city's the one, but it's, you know, it's really interesting. It's like really frequently in my social life and in my professional life, I will work with people who are you know successful in America but not well known in London or very successful in the UK and want to tour in the US and it's really difficult for people because it's like same language it should be easy and I'm like well no it's like a totally different country so you have to kind of start at square one and just think like okay where could we go how might it work you know I was working earlier this year with Patrick Gale who's like a mega best selling author in the UK He wanted to do a quick sort of US tour and especially connect with like some younger queer readers that were sort of just discovering his work and also some of his longtime fans, because he's written, I think 16 or 17 novels. And so when I was evaluating whether or not it would work, I was like, I think we would have to really build it around you going to Provincetown because it's the height of summer. You know, everybody that would really be able to support the book is going to be there looking for things to do. It's the time to go. Um, if we can get that, I'm really happy to kind of build a book tour around it. And it worked out. It was really amazing. The bookstore was hugely supportive. It was just a wonderful, wonderful tour. And so I think it's just about thinking really deeply about like, okay, what's the bookstore looking for in this town? You know, is there a connection there that maybe goes beyond my work or is it a place that features in the book or, um, you know, sometimes you might write about something and, it's just relevant to different people. Like, if you write about horses, you can obviously do events in Kentucky. You can obviously do events in Baltimore. You know, there's certain places where there's going to be an affinity for certain topics. If you're writing a book about politics, obviously it's going to do well in DC. If you're writing a book about the entertainment world, obviously LA and New York are going to find it really relatable. Tech in San Francisco. So it's really just thinking like, okay, if I'm going to Chicago, what are the different ways that I'm building an audience? Maybe it's a bookstore that I really love and I've really admired that has taken an interest in my book and has posted about it. So I might just do a soft query and DM them and say like, gosh, thanks so much for posting about this book. Like if you would ever want the author to come, let me know we're thinking about doing a tour. And then, you know, beyond that, it might be like, okay, well then who could they be in conversation with? You know, is there an outlet or a magazine or someone they have a relationship with that might help present? And just thinking about all the ways that you can kind of layer those different textures of awareness on it so that you can really come away saying like, yeah, like I really wanted to have, you know, 50 people there. We had 40 people there. We sold all the books and I signed stock. That to me is a success. If you flew to, halfway around the world to do that, it might not feel like a success if it was, but a massive undertaking. But I think people really don't think a lot about, you know, again, those places where you might have friends or family that you just don't go to all the time. They might, you know, I talked to an author earlier this year that lived in one city that we would consider a big cultural capital, but spent quite a lot of time for their spouse's job in another city that, you know, they just sort of thought of like, well, that's part of my relationship that I live there part of the time. And I was like, they have a great indie bookstore. Why aren't we doing an event there? And it was a big smash. So, you know, and I was like, yeah, you're an author where you live most of the time and everyone's an author there, but in this town, that's not true. So let's go where it's news. So I think it's just really important to think creatively. And what I love about events is like, you're typically going to see The most interest is going to be close to pub because that's when they think there might be, you know, press coverage, there might be some possibility of marketing or a higher level of awareness for your work. And so they don't want to get you like on the 14th event where everyone has seen you, but they do want to kind of be in the front. But you can stretch that a little bit if it's compelling. You know, if you're saying like, okay, well... I'm going to go to Palm Springs and I've got an author there that I interviewed who's really connected in the local scene and, you know, that'll be a great event even though my book came out six months ago. So I think people often, yeah, they have a kind of like a very textbook idea about what a successful event is and I'm like take all the parts apart and try and put them together one by one and then see if that feels like it adds up to success for you.
0: Okay. So a question that I think is related not only to touring and events but to kind of everything that we've been talking about is happiness and satisfaction mm. because I'm um, you know again this goes back to the question that I asked earlier about expectations management you must see all kinds of moods and outcomes among your clients and mm-hmm. i think a natural question to ask is who are generally speaking the authors who have the happiest time of publishing a book and doing a publicity cycle for a book? Like what are some common denominators among authors who have a good go of it?
1: Yeah, the ones that are the happiest are the ones that have thought or are open to thinking really clearly about all of this stuff and so have their own plan and their own like roadmap of what success is going to feel like to me, who I care about knowing about this book ways that I might reach them, how I might get to my readers, and then are able to have the attitude of like, all right. And then for the like, I don't know, four to six months that I have my publisher's attention, they will be amplifying what I'm doing. They will be adding a new dimension to what I'm doing. They will have different resources, different, you know, relationships, different things in house that they can do for me, but I will already be doing something. And then when that's over, I will continue on my way of doing the things that I know are going to bring me to an audience and are going to help me kind of cultivate readers over time. You know, those people, and there are probably one or two of them living at any one time, are, I think, the most kind of zen about it, you know. But I think it it is that ability to cultivate that sense of like, yeah, the publisher is there to do what they do, which is announce that they have a new product. They, they have put out a product in the market. That is really what they're announcing. They're not getting the world to recognize your talent. That is for like awards and, you know, other kinds of recognition. And sometimes like a great review can do that. But from their perspective, it's like this is for sale. Booksellers or major consumers can order it. That's really the deal. And so I think people often think and it, part of it is because like there's just not there's a lot of like oh, you don't have to worry about this. We're going to take care of everything. And then like not over promising, but like not really explaining to people like how much of the day is rejection and how much of the time is like, well, you know, that person is seems really booked up right now. I don't even know if I can pitch them or you know, the bookstore was into it, but it's a really tough season to travel. And I'm just not sure that tour is going to be what you want. So okay, well, maybe you can go in the spring. So it's like, that idea of kind of flexibility, that idea of like, all right, well, let's get started. And then you can kind of get all of the pieces together. I think that is going to lend itself to a feeling of kind of confidence that is internal. And that is the stuff that lasts, you know, and then when you feel like you've done everything, you go back to writing. And because it's it's not really possible to promote a book and write at the same time. I yeah. don't know any writer. And I've worked with writers that have sold, you know, tens of millions of copies and like fewer copies. So it's like, nobody does that. Nobody is like, and then as soon as I hung up my, you know, headphones, I got right deep into that third or fourth <laughs> revision of this manuscript that I just can't finish. Nobody does that. Like, I mean, if I had one thing today dispels any rumor it's like most of 99.9% of the people that I work with do not write while they're promoting a book
0: yeah I've heard that repeatedly
1: they just kind of give it their all and then when it feels like you know when you can say like what feels undone and you're like nothing really at the moment then it's like okay it's time to just kind of you know press pause on the events unless they're really meaningful to you You know, maybe talk to a book club. Sure. That's a group of people. Any group of more than 10 people. Yes. But, um, you know, not be going in that kind of like hunt and gather and search mode for opportunities, but rather just kind of let your sort of promotional side rest a bit while you turn your creative energy to the thing that you're really passionate about. So, I most writers I know are kind of going in between depending on what they have going on.
0: All right. Well, where can people, I mean, I think we've covered if not all of it, a lot of it, you know, a lot of what a writer will face when it comes to book publicity. If there's anything that I missed, feel free to interject here. Otherwise, I'm, I just want people to know where they can find you if they want to try to hire you or if they want to just learn more about you online.
1: Yeah. I mean, anyone can send me a note through my website, com, anytime. And then I'm on X under my old blog name, Lux Lotus. And then I'm X on x being
0: former the site formerly known as Twitter. Known as Twitter. Yeah.
1: And then I'm on for the moment. And then on Instagram, I'm Lauren Sarand. And then I'm on Facebook. I'm not really active on anything else at the moment. Like okay. that was really interesting for me the first time that I like came to a new app and was like, I'm fine.
0: Yeah, I'm there's fine. only so much. There's only so much that a person. Well, for can me, manage.
1: like I've spent like 20 years cult. I'm really, really, really interested in international literature and like working internationally on translated books, but also just like in every new market and country. I'm just, I want to know more about it. I think it's fascinating. I'm just really that culturally aligned with my values. I lived in Italy for a year. Like I just, I follow kind of everything. So I, um, I'm always sort of expanding in that way and sort of thinking like, okay, what is the kind of reach of this new app and would I still be able to kind of get international literary news and you know, how can I kind of focus on that? So I think in the last year I've probably subscribed to like, I think I read like newspapers and magazines in like five or six countries every day. Oh, wow. So I'm on social media. That's where I share the news about like, you know, projects that I'm working on or anything that I think is especially noteworthy in the world. Um, but yeah, people can write me. I'm like, I try to have a really open door attitude because I didn't know. I learned some things the hard way. I don't think you should have to learn things the hard way if someone is there who can answer your questions or, or be open to it. But yeah, I really don't think I don't think hiring a publicist is the most important thing. I hear like every, I get messages every day where people are like, my friends have told me that I have to hire an independent publicist. And I'm like, well, you really only hear from like unhappy people and really happy people. There's a huge group of people in the middle that are getting by just fine. They're just not talking about it. Hmm. So I think it's just, you know, people have questions. They're welcome to email me. I'm happy to answer them. And yeah, and yeah, I have an open door.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate the time and love talking to you and, can't believe how long we've known each other. It's been a, it's been a minute, right? We go back away. I know you were
1: <laughs> writing. It was your first book. You had your first book out, and actually, I did think you were like one of the most exciting authors for sure. In terms of like the way that you were able to like, you know, have the nervous break- breakdown to talk about your work and like make it really clear that you had a book. I was always really aware that you had a book. But also bring other people into the conversation. Like, that's something that you've always done, like, in a singular way. That's just so cool and, like, such an inspiration to people. So, when we talk about publicity, like, I also want to bring that into the room that, like, you're a real model, I think, of, like, you know, crafting a path with integrity that has, you know, brought you 10 plus years of conversation, but goes way, way, way back because there's always going to be someone who's, like, I can only write my work in the forest where there is no light and, you know, in a house with no windows. And that's great. If you need that to work, you should, the most important thing is creating the work. But I think the way that you've been able to, you know, connect to the world and, and make something really powerful. Yeah, it's always been an inspiration to me. So thank you.
0: All right, guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Lauren Sarand, literary publicist, teaching us how to think like a publicist you can find Lauren on the internet at Lauren track her down on social media Twitter Facebook Instagram and LinkedIn and reach out to her she's very approachable and knowledgeable and helpful as you have probably gleaned so Lauren don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen you can also Subscribe on YouTube. Follow The Other People Show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Don't forget to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com and join The Other People Patreon community if you're in the holiday spirit, if you love this show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a quick review. If that is an option, it helps the show in the rankings, it helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that over at the show's official website otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. It's my book. It's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right. So coming up on Friday, there will be a new flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, there will be an episode, but it is TBD in terms of who the guest will be. I'm still sorting it out. I'm still coming back from Thanksgiving. It's taking me a minute. But it's going to happen, it's just going to be a bit of a surprise, so stay tuned.